This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me as he is every single week, my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing. Matthew, you know, okay, I was going to ask you, how's everything going this week? But I kind of have a feeling if I ask you that question, I'm going to get a comicsology rant. Chris, we're not going to talk about comicsology and uh, being bought by Amazon and now not allowing me to make in-app purchases. Uh, all I'm going to say is that I'm not happy about it. Um, yeah, other than that, Chris, the weather here has been beautiful. Um, it's gotten cooler again, you know, more like in the 60s, uh, low 70s. So that's gorgeous. I appreciate that. And um, yeah, it's it's crazy. Um a lot going on in life for me. I'm very, very busy. I know you understand that as well. Uh, I feel like I'm going a million miles a minute. And finally this weekend, this Saturday, I am sleeping in, folks. So do not call me. Do not text me. Do not bother me. I'm going to be sleeping in. You're just like a book that I read to my daughter. It's in the Dr. Seuss series. And it's called I'm Not Getting Up Today. <laughs> the whole book is the town trying to wake this kid up, and he refuses to wake up. So that's going to be you on Saturday. <laughs> that's me. That's me. Very good. Well, before you can get that rest on the weekend, Matthew, we need to tell everyone what's happening in the world of Star Trek books and comics this week, outside of the comicsology bit. So let's just jump right into the news here. And the first thing we have up is Klingon Art of War from our friend Keith R.A. DeCandido coming up very, very soon, and uh, we have a little bit of new information about it. Yeah, Chris, uh, he was on the GNT show uh, just talking about the new book, and uh, exciting. He, he was just kind of talking about what kind of book it's going to be. Uh, he said it's going to obviously be in the vein of Sun Tzu's Art of War, um, kind of more like a philosophy book, uh, a guide to life, he said. Um, so really um, his first self-help book. Uh, Keith was talking that he he was able to write. Um, so now don't be fooled. I, I don't think that if you go to your local Barnes and Noble that you go to the self help section, you'll find the Klingon Art of War there. Um, but uh, that's kind of the vein of this book. Um, really going to be structured like that, um, and uh, it apparently is written and published not long after Kalis's disappearance, ascension, whatever. And it was also after the Herc invasion that we've heard about before as well. Um, so this is exciting to me. I'm 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 love that we're kind of getting more 
into what it means to be a Klingon. You know, we hear a lot about honor. In fact, Chris, we talked about um, even Worf um, mentioning that he uses that word a lot. That's right. In Strange Bedfellows, he says yeah, it to Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I do not think that word means what he thinks it means. But uh, maybe, um, you know, here uh, we'll get a better idea what it really meant, the idea of being a warrior um, and a proper warrior, as, as Keith puts it here. So I'm excited yeah. about this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to, to read through this. Uh, they did this uh, with Star Wars. They did The Path of the Jedi which was a fantastic book that, that was, uh, it, it, it was like a textbook for being a Jedi, basically, um, that all these different Jedi had actually written notes in, too. So as you're reading through mm-hmm. it, you'd like read Luke's notes or Yoda's notes or whatever. Uh, and that Yoda's was notes were lots of fun to read, right? Yeah, they were backwards uh, English, too. Uh, backwards basic. Uh, they did the same thing for the Sith, the Book of the Sith. So I like that Star Trek is doing this with the Klingons here because they do have a very rich history, and I think this is going to be enjoyable for everyone. I'm waiting for the Vulcan Art of Tea book. Ah, well, see, for me, I was looking for the Tarkalian book of tea because uh, their tea is so famous. It is, it is. But, you know, T'Pol is really into teas, and so I think that the Vulcan Art of Tea written by T'Pol would be an excellent book. Uh, that or maybe the Vulcan book of soup. <laughs> yes. Because they really like their plumic soup, you know, and so like have all the different families on Vulcan give their different versions, you know. Um, I like they're all it. just as bland uh, as as the other. So <laughs> I like it. So Margaret, if you're listening, these are the next books that we'd like to see in this series. I don't oh, know if Keith's man. the right writer for the Vulcan book of soup, but... I'm sure someone out there will be ready to write that. (laughs) All right. Well, next thing up here, Matthew, is a new, new frontier. And I guess it was on last week's show, wasn't it, that I recommended Peter David's New Frontier books. And it looks like right now that uh, there's a possibility that uh, Peter David may have plans afoot for a new, new frontier novel and it would be the first one since Blind Man's Bluff back in 2011. Yep. Uh, one of the uh, members of the Trek PBS boards was at a uh, convention there in Salt Lake City uh, where Peter David uh, had attended. And he mentioned that there are fl- plans afoot for a new uh, Frontier novel. And uh, so that's exciting for all the fans who really have enjoyed that series. Um as I told everybody last week, I know, I know, we got letters about it. I don't want to hear about it anymore. But my first <laughs> Peter David book was last week. Uh, I have not read any of the New Frontier, uh, and so, but I know so many fans enjoyed this series. So I am very excited for them that this may be coming up. Um, yeah, definitely, It'd be good to see that continue. I do say best of luck then to Peter David and and getting another New Frontier book out there for the fans. Definitely. And Dayton, our friend Dayton Ward, has a new TNG book coming up as well. This is Armageddon's Arrow, featuring Picard and company, and it is set after Star Trek The Fall, so he's going to be continuing the TNG threads after that big epic story that we just got last year. Yes, he is, and uh, he said he's also been wanting to do this kind of TNG story for a while, Um 
just kind of very much in that TOS flavor, uh, giving Picard and gang just some weird alien stuff to, to deal with. And uh, it's been a while since we've seen uh, Picard and company actually do any exploring. In fact, I, I do recall Picard asking that same question in Insurrection. Does anybody remember when we used to be explorers? Um, and yeah. so it looks like we might just get some exploring out of them yet. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) I would like to see that too. And Dayton is so good at writing the TOS period novels. It's going to be really fun to see him take the TNG characters, but but put that TOS flavor into the story. Well, and I think, uh, you know, it's it's just something that, um, well, it it had been missing just a little bit from the 24th century. And uh, it'll be fun to have the, I I really just think it's it's great to give uh, the TNG characters a little bit of levity, just a a little bit of room to breathe at this point. Um, And I have to say, I I really enjoyed uh, the way that Dayton wrote those characters in Peaceful Kingdoms. Chen and, and, and the way she played off for card. I'm hoping that there's going to be some more of that. Um, and then just allowing this this crew to experience some some enjoyment, some excitement and some good old fashioned discovery. Uh, you know, it, it used to be about boldly going. Um, so hopefully they're just going to boldly go where no one has gone before and we'll get to enjoy watching that happen on, on the next generation again. So. Right. Because it became boldly transporting bold diplomats to bold conferences on TNG so much of the time, right? To bold grain shipments, to let's pick up the <laughs> trillion ambassador, to, oh yeah. It, the bold or, trillion ambassador. The, exactly. Oh, goodness. All right. Well, so that's going to be coming up from Dayton as well. So that's what we have in terms of book news for this week. We do have one other thing to do here in our news segment before we jump into the feature. And that's to talk about the second part of I Enterprise, the comic series. Now, Matthew, we both were able to get our copies of I Enterprise Part 2 onto our iPads before the ability to purchase it through the app was removed. So we're all set to talk about it here. And, um, you know, the first part of the story, when we discussed this about a month ago, I think we both felt that it was it was interesting, right? But it was very much the setup for what was going to come in part two. And now we have part two. What was your just basic thought on the story? Well, Chris, uh, I I thought that um, the setup was good. And then I liked the payoff. Um, I I thought overall this, this helped explain the character that we saw into darkness, which I had no idea who he was and what he was doing back there. And, what kind of being he was in the first place. And so, you know, I only really paid attention to him because he has a card in Star Trek Rivals. Oh, yeah. He pops yeah. up. Yeah. Otherwise, like you see him standing back there on the bridge, but but he's just kind of there. There's not much to the fact he's there. Yeah. And so I thought it was great giving us a, a comic explanation for him and honestly giving him a very interesting uh, backstory. Yeah. In fact... I would say that this is Ongoing's version of the motion picture. Um, and, ah, good point. Uh, and really, they just took some elements from that motion picture idea of kind of meeting a, a very highly advanced, technologically advanced, 
um, species and yeah. who thinks that uh, machines and and um, that kind of life form is, is what is the highest form of life and um, thinking that obviously carbon units are infesting the enterprise because that's really what yeah. happens here. Um, so I thought that I that think, was really interesting, the twist. Yeah, I think you could take, that's a good point about the motion picture. I think it's that. And you maybe also could take a little bit of Nomad from the Changeling, who is also yep. out to mm-hmm. annihilate biological life and wants to kill everyone on the Enterprise because they are impure. But yeah, motion picture, it is sort of a JJ twist on that. Um, I agree, the payoff was excellent. I thought the comic, was very good. The story's very good and it has some humor in it too. I like this here on page eight where the the Enterprise in its humanoid form uh, says that Captain Kirk, my newfound sentience does not supersede my core programming. I remain yours to command. And Kirk says, good to hear. Now put some clothes on. <laughs> and yeah. I can exactly hear Chris Pine <laughs> saying that. Yeah, was uh, I I did like that a lot. I thought that that was really funny. Now, what is interesting is that this has been done before in the novel verse, um, where the Titan actually becomes sentient in Synthesis yeah. by James Swallow, mm-hmm. um, which made for a really interesting. In fact, Minuet was actually the the sentient form avatar form for titan so okay so uh, so did Riker ever tell minuet put some clothes on like kirk said right here you know uh <laughs> i honestly can't remember i don't think he had to tell minuet that because uh, obviously her her avatar form already has clothes on um and so i do think he had to tell her to stop rubbing his neck like that because that's now counselor <laughs> choice job <laughs> troy's getting a little jealous over there so um the one thing that I did find confusing about the way this comic is done is that when does this story take place, right? Because we see him in Star Trek Into Darkness on the bridge, and we know that the comics right now that we're going through take place after Into Darkness, and they're supposed to be on their five-year mission. And if you go back to the first issue, on the very first page where they give the credits, it says... Previously on Star Trek, the USS Enterprise has embarked on a new five-year mission after the events of Star Trek Into Darkness. Among the ship's new crew is the science officer, 0718, whose remarkable origin has remained a mystery until now. And then you jump into the story in the first comic, and you see him as we saw him in Into Darkness, and that's all great. And then you get to this next scene where the Enterprise is approaching this dark sphere, And then it says, and seven seconds ago, asterisk, and then in a tiny box, shortly before the events of Star Trek Into Darkness. If you don't catch that little box right there, the whole rest of the story sort of, for me, can be a bit confusing about when this takes place because you're thinking, well, he's already there and now he's just coming to life for the first time. And then at the end of part two, he actually gets his name and of course, by then you realize, okay, well, this must have taken place before and all. I I just think that they kind of didn't handle the setup of the story as well as they could. 
Yeah, it, I, I agree with you. Now, what is interesting, and I do want to point this out, but at the conference table, Chris, on, uh, I believe this is, oh goodness, let me see what page this is. Um, right after Pine says, put some clothes on. If you yeah. look at that conference table, doesn't that look like Carol Marcus? Yeah. Sitting at the table. She's not supposed yeah. to be there. Good point. This is before See? Into Darkness. So yeah. she shouldn't there be go. there. I think that that's the other confusion. Um, yeah. And so now well, it's never mentioned fact, that that is Carol Marcus, but. Yeah, but it, it is. looks just I mean, like we've, her. we've seen her drawn in the other yeah. comics, and so that's her. So that is a mistake. Now, initially, I thought that's Zara. But then I said, no, that's Carol Marcus. And we do get to see Zara. I I believe this is Zara anyway on page 14 when, when they're back there, you know, suiting up. Right. But Zara is security and she right. should be in red. So, yeah. again, it, it if it is supposed to be Zara, it is a mistake. Um, yeah. Maybe it well, is. Well, and that's to not Carol her. Marcus either because this person has gold. So. Yeah, I don't know. So. There are a lot of little little things right there, but I will say though that these things don't detract from what no, is an otherwise very very interesting story about the Enterprise gaining sentience and the origin of the science officer zero seven one eight, which um, yeah, it's a nice it's a nice twist in the Abrams verse, I think. Yeah, I think this is actually for me one of the better stories. Um, just uh, I, I think that it was really interesting to see how, um, you know, they do kind of run across this V'ger nomad like planet that's that the whole population has. Um, they they merge their consciousness with their technology and, yeah. and then, it, it, you know, created just this kind of perfect sphere in space which yeah. now it it just longs to be and exist. And, and you come up with this whole idea with Kirk talking about, but, you know, if your only thing is existence, then aren't you missing what it means to be alive? And you then, of course, yeah. ask the philosophical question, what does it mean to exist and, and what we consider to be alive? And so all these things really, you know, boiling around in, in this big, huge pot they've thrown in, in this uh, uh, two part comic and i really like it i think it's one of the better it, it just feels like a star trek episode you know and they've taken bits and pieces from different star trek um that we've seen and kind of are mixing them together again here in the jj verse but i think it's really well done the artwork is fantastic here yeah the artwork uh, looks so beautiful. i love this comic uh, series i thought it was very well done i also like the the sphere that they encounter what you described with everyone basically transferred their consciousness into this network because it also reminds me it is it is sort of inspired by things we've seen in Star Trek before but it also reminded me of Norman Spinrad's book Deus Ex which is sort of it's a matrix like situation as well in which humans are in order to become immortal they're transferring their consciousness into a global network and it's it highlights what could happen with technology, which is what the Borg does in Star Trek as well. But of course, the Borg are part biological, 
part mechanical. And here you've got that idea, as Benrad did in his book as well, of of what happens if we go too far and then we all do just become sort of like this this mesh or or matrix of 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 uh neural energy or something, but we're kind of all this one one clump and we just completely lose our identity as biological life. And uh, that was a nice SF element in here too. Well, what would you give this? Well, Chris, I, you know, I think that um, all in all, uh, I would give this comic, um, I would give this nine out of 10 perfectly rounded blackened spheres wow that's great i think the horda would also appreciate that rating yeah no kidding i I think (laughs) they would as well (laughs) um yeah i enjoyed it as well i think i'm going to give it eight misplaced carol marcuses (laughs) oh ah man you can misplace her here anytime you want (laughs) so Excellent. Well, I'm glad we got to finally get to the second part of iEnterprise there since we weren't able to do it last week, Matthew. And that's all we have in the new segment today. Before we jump into the feature where we're going to be joined once again by Dan Gunther to talk about Mission Gamma Twilight, the next book in the DS9 relaunch series, which we're going through. We'd like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. They are the best source for audiobooks you'll find anywhere online. They have more than 150,000 titles waiting for you right now. They put hundreds of new titles in every single week. And uh, if you love podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks. If you're already listening to audiobooks, but you're getting them from some other source, you really should check out Audible. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. And what we like to do every week is to recommend a book for you to check out. And Matthew, you know, I I wasn't thinking about this one going in, but after what we just talked about at the end of the iEnterprise comic right there, I think the book I'd like to recommend this week is the new book from Mikio Kaku, the scientist Mikio Kaku. This one is called The Future of the Mind, The Scientific Quest to Understand, Enhance, and Empower the Mind. And I actually have this book right now. I'm making my way through it. And I love Mikio Kaku. I've read everything he's ever written. And uh, this new book is very fascinating and um, is, once again, true to form for Kaku. Well, that's really cool, Chris. Uh, I think I might uh, have to pick that one up myself. I was just uh, thinking about what I might read next. So sounds like uh, Goodreads has uh, something new to go on it. Uh, definitely. What, do you have room on your Goodreads, Matthew? I get updates all the time. <laughs> like you add like seven or eight books at a time to your your want to read list or shelf. I guess it's called on Goodreads. Yeah, uh, Chris, I'm. Uh, you're right. I I do. Uh, <laughs> it's actually gotten me in trouble recently, <laughs> yeah. uh, trying to fit so many books in. But I do. I do love finding a new, a new book, and and sometimes for me. Um, the easiest way to do that is to get the audiobook so I can listen to it like maybe right. on the yeah. on the train and so that's what makes audible so great most definitely well a quick look at what this book is about it is now if you've never read any of Mikio Kaku's stuff you really should go back and read things like hyperspace uh, physics of the impossible really great books this one is about the brain and 
the basic concept is recording memories, mind reading, videotaping our dreams, mind control, avatars, and telekinesis. No longer are these feats of the mind solely the province of overheated science fiction. As Mikio Kaku reveals, not only are they possible, but with the latest advances in brain science and recent astonishing breakthroughs in technology, they already exist. So you might be saying, no way, this stuff doesn't exist. Well, go pick up the book and find out what Mikio Kaku will reveal to you. And the way you can get the book for free is to try Audible. As a Trek FM listener, go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. Choose The Future of the Mind or any other book you like and get that for free. If at the end of the trial you decide Audible's not for you, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep this book, but I know you're going to love Audible. And by supporting Audible, you'll be helping us keep literary treks coming to you every week. So again, check it out at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Well, Chris, uh, we are going to be getting back into our Deep Space Nine relaunch this week. Uh, We have already covered Avatar Books 1, and then the short novella they published after that that they called Book 2. We did Abyss, Demons of Air and Darkness, and then, of course, the novella following that up, the short story, Horn and Ivory. So this next book that we're going to be doing starts off the Mission Gamma series. Uh, the first one is called Twilight. It's by David R. George III, one of our favorites here on Literary Treks. And this book was released originally in September of 2002. Now, crazy to think, Chris, book two in the series was also released in September. Book three came out in um, October and then November, book four of the series came out. So they only had we only had to wait back then just a few months to actually get the entire story. Whereas, you know, uh, something like uh, the Enterprise series that we've been reading, you have to wait every year now. And so... Yeah, well, and thankfully, though, the second book in September was only 390 pages, not 504 pages like Twilight. Nevertheless, September of 2002, you were basically reading like a piece of 19th century Russian literature, right? (laughs) To get through that story in that same month. Very long books here. Yeah. And I, I, it just speaks to, um, I think, uh, what they were trying to set up to Uh, this book really does set the stage for what will come next in the series, but also it really ties together all the threads from the previous entries in the Deep Space Nine relaunch. Yeah, it does. Mm. Well, Chris, uh, really excited to get in the book, but first I wanted to introduce the fact that we have Dan back with us to talk about Mission Gamma. So, Dan, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you very much. It's uh, really great to be back. Dan, 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 <laughs> Dan. <laughs> yeah, welcome back, Dan. We've we've gotten a lot of great feedback from your appearance on the show last time. Oh, well, thanks. That's that's really great to hear. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. So I'm I'm glad that I could make a contribution. No, definitely. Glad to have you. Well, Chris uh, and Dan, so we, we did talk about a little bit that this is a very long book for a, a Star Trek novel. We, we don't really tend to get uh, a book of this magnitude anymore. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit uh, about, you know, uh, the first book and kind of getting into it. Reading through it, I mean, originally when this is published, it's 504 pages in a paperback. That that is a that is a large paperback, uh, and and so one with all of that, just kind of the overall impressions of the book itself. 
Well, I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was a perfect approach to the subject matter of Deep Space Nine. Like you said, we don't get books this long anymore, but yet when you watch Deep Space Nine, you feel like if you wrote this out in prose, you're going to get a 500-page book to tell one of these stories. And that's exactly what David R. George III did here. And the the number of threads that are tied up here, I mean, we're dealing with Bajor and it's possible, finally, it's possible admittance to the Federation. You've got uh, Vaughn and his daughter Prynne and their relationship. Of course, you've got Dax and Bashir. You've got Quark and Rolaren. Uh, you've even got a bit about the Andorian reproductive crisis uh, that's going on. Uh, plus, what I loved about this too is you got that feeling, which I think we we lost on Deep Space Nine on the television series. As much as we love the series, we lost that sense of exploration that's part of Star Trek. And finally here, when they set out on this mission to go to the Gamma Quadrant, we once again feel like like Kirk's five-year mission again. Like we're finally going out and we're, we're seeking out new life and strange new worlds. And we actually meet a new race that we've never heard of before. Definitely. Uh, Dan, what did, what did you think uh, reading through the book? Okay, well... Um... Like Chris said, it's uh, it's very long. Uh, kind of initial impression is it's a very long book, many pages. And I don't know if you noticed, but the, the type on each page is actually really small as well. Um, I think it was probably the densest Star Trek book I've ever read. Uh, but I do have to say, uh, one thing about it is it really carries on the Deep Space Nine idea of characters being the most important thing. Every plot and subplot in this book is character, character, character. And it's all about the relationships between the different characters. And I think that came out very well. It was uh, really great to see some of the connections that they made between different characters. Uh, The history that we see between certain characters kind of coming to the fore. And even though there are kind of really big issues or really large uh, challenges to face, what ultimately becomes important is um, showing how they affect the people, the characters of on Deep Space Nine and on The Defiant. Yeah, I, um, you know, reading through the book and, and, and finishing it up again today, I mean, I honestly haven't read this book since 2002 when it came out. You know, I, I just gobbled the the... Uh, Deep Space Nine relaunch up and obviously was super excited that I wasn't waiting as long as I have to now um, you know but I, I just this book to me in you know the the clearest easiest form to say is it's about relationships um, and it's about all sorts of relationships it, it's about familial relationships love relationships it's about new relationships old relationships it's about um, the relationships between countries and and um, between uh, entities. I mean, it, it just about any type of relationship you can think of, this book is about. And I think you're right, Dan. It, it really drives the heart of what Deep Space Nine was about, which was what Chris and I have talked about so much on the orb. You have the 24th century set up in the next generation. And then Deep Space Nine says, okay, well... You've created this utopia, that's great, but how do you actually live in this universe? What is it like to live there? 
Um, what's it like to be an actual person there? Because in TNG, most of them don't really feel like people so much of the time. They, they feel like ideals right. um, walking around. And, and in Deep Space Nine, we strip all those ideals off and we, we put people front and center and relationship front and center. And so uh, that's one of the things I think that I, I just really, really love ab- about this book. Um, and David R. George is fantastic about doing that, uh, making it about character. And so I, I really appreciate that here in the book. Um, and, and I think the biggest, one of the biggest relationships and, and kind of the, the overarching relationship here in the book is is Bajor and the Federation coming together. Um, you know, and this is huge since the beginning of Deep Space Nine, Cisco's mission is to bring Bajor into the fold to to see if they are ready for... Uh, federation membership and and that's what the whole show in in the beginning at least we thought was going to be out about and and this is actually going to happen here and, and it actually plays itself out in some some really different ways especially the the relationship between kira and akar is that how you say his name mm-hmm. akar he pronounces it i was glad that david did this in the book he actually makes a line where it says he pronounced it akar yeah Mm-hmm. Uh, the relationship because I would have never read it that way otherwise. <laughs> uh, yeah. The relationship between Akaar uh, and Kira, I think, is 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 a really uh, interesting mix there as well. And so, just diving into that, uh, you know, Chris and and Dan, what did you think about them finally kind of bringing us to this point with with Bajor? And 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 it, I mean, reading through, do you really think uh, Bajor is ready for Federation membership by the end of the book? Um, yeah, like it, it's a fairly momentous uh, thing because, like you said, it was kind of in the first episode, Picard handing his orders down to Cisco, like you're here to make sure Bejor is ready to join the Federation. Um, are they ready? I I think so. I mean, you kind of look over the years at the people that have been led into the Federation before. Yeah, I think Bejor's ready. There's going to be some stumbles and that kind of thing but i think uh i think we've seen kind of seven years of them getting ready and uh yeah i think they're they're well on their way if not they're already yeah i i think they're ready i i i'm glad that this happens in this book because Another thing that I think at times gets lost on the television series is the fact that Cisco's original purpose in being there was to prepare Bajor for admission into the Federation. Picard tells him it's your job to get them ready. And that's why the Federation was there in the first place. And because of the war and things that went on, that didn't happen. Now, of course, there was the point where they were going to join the Federation. And then Cisco said, no, this isn't what's right for you right now. And so they decided not to join. And it's taken so long to get back to that. But I, I think that they're as ready as as many other worlds that are in the Federation right now. If, if, if it had turned out that they couldn't be part of the Federation yet, I would really scratch my head and wonder, well, why is this planet and this planet and this planet part of the Federation? Mm-hmm. And exactly what was Starfleet been doing there for the last seven years if Bajor is not ready by now kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, and I I agree with you uh, guys. I just I thought it was an interesting question. Is as, as as Kira kind of struggles through the question herself, you know, what is this going to look like? And everybody has to struggle through this question. I mean, um, 
you know, Ro has to ask herself the question, what is it going to look like for her to have, uh, you know, Bajor, the Bajoran militia come into the, to the, the Federation. Um, Kira has to ask herself that question. What is that going to look like for me? Uh, will I, they, you know, they still want me around, you know, um, Quirk is asking that question. What's going to happen to my bar? Uh, with a moneyless society, which is a huge question. You know, I still don't really understand. Uh, I still don't think that's how the Federation works. I I actually made a note at that point in the book. And I I get it. That's what they say about Star Trek. But no, I really don't think that's how it works. Yeah, that was always a little bit confusing to me. Like, you know, when, when the station's administered by Starfleet, he can... He can uh, charge customers, but when all of a sudden Bajor is a Federation world, he can't. I don't really see the problem there. Yeah. Especially all the people that would be traveling. Like you have... Right. You have people, lots of people who aren't part of the Federation who are coming through, stopping over there. I don't see any problem with charging them for drinks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I didn't get that either um, because it, it... he already charges Starfleet people. I mean, you know, uh, anytime you, you, we've watched Starfleet officers buy things from Quark, they have to pay him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and and I mean, obviously, we've seen even Starfleet officers have things like latinum, like Gen Zia has latinum that she she wins. Um, Starfleet officers play Dabo. We've seen that too. I mean, so it didn't really make sense to me exactly Quark's big frustration there. Um, other than it works out for his, the resolution that what Quirk is is not somebody who's after Latinum and being the the best right. quote unquote Ferengi anymore. What he's after is this kind of more human ideal, which is stu- stability and friendship and and that kind of thing and that he covers yeah. over with his Ferengi ideals. Dink dink quote. So, <laughs> well. It works for the character development of Quark, and it also works to create a bond between Quark and Ro Mm -hmm. as the two people who are forming this relationship together, and both of them, their position is now threatened by the outcome of this this, um, decision on Federation membership. I do have to say, Morn must just be thinking, you know, jackpot, right? (laughs) <laughs> well Morn is too he's too busy doing um poetry, poetry readings, readings yeah. for everybody apparently. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love the point in the book where where uh someone asks Quark I think Ro asks someone asks Quark about um a situation that Morn was talking about and Quark says I don't know. I've learned not to ask questions because if I do Morn might answer me and there goes another hour of my life. <laughs> <laughs> what i what i thought was really uh interesting when you're you're bringing this in and 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 it's uh the end of the book where kira is talking to akar and he says you know the federation has chosen to invite and accept bajor into our community because the bajorans offer something of their own uniqueness there's no need or desire to change that this union is not how bajor can fit into the federation but rather how the Federation could be made part of Bajor. And and I thought that that was really interesting because, you know, you really have seen um, all these different uh, species and planets and everything come into the Federation and they don't lose their identity. I mean, you know, obviously Andorians 
don't suddenly become um, ha- have to base their sexual morality on anybody else. You know, they're, they're still free to, to be who they are and all of that kind of thing. And the Bajorans and who they are with their faith, I think they really bring something to the Federation in a way that a lot of um, races in the Federation have maybe kind of lost. And, and, uh, and I, uh, appreciation for art and culture and all these things that because of where they have been, um, you know, almost in the same way as obviously the Jewish people have been, they offer this this whole new perspective to the Federation. And I think that that was just watching that happen. This is where I see Bajor's lessons being able to help the Federation um, and kind of craft a, hopefully a new, um, better Federation in light of all that's happened with the Dominion War. And honestly, too, I mean, I'm glad it happened in this book because we kind of need some good things to happen, you know, for Bajor and yeah. for the Federation at this point after the Dominion War. It, I, I just think it, it makes for a great story element, a kind of a triumphant moment that like, OK, we've lost the emissary. Benjamin Sisko is not here anymore. We've had this huge, ama- ridiculous war, but we're kicking off this Mission Gamma series, one, by going to explore the Gamma Quadrant, which is something that we've been wanting to see for a long time. Uh, and two, we're going to have um, a, a big celebration of the planet that was supposed to be coming into the Federation a long time ago, at least we thought, finally come into the fold. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really cool. What did you guys think about that, the, the tension between Kira and Akaar for, for most of the book? Um, I kind of thought uh, Kira's perspective on on Akaar and and uh, kind of ascribing emotions or uh, motives to him that may or may not necessarily be there was kind of interesting. Um, I think rereading it now, coming to it after he's been in a character in so many novels afterwards, it was kind of an interesting perspective on that. Uh, because we le- we know a lot about how he thinks and how he views uh, the Federation and, and its mission and that kind of thing. So it was really interesting to see kind of these formative uh, moments for his character. I kind of attributed it to the fact that she... Kira is someone who I think can be very much... She's very self-confident and she has a strong faith. But when it comes to the Federation and those personnel, I think she's always felt all the way through the TV series and beyond that people are always questioning whether she should be in the position she's in in the first place. And I think that the attainder that's been put on her, barring her from her practicing her faith, uh, adds to that. And so she's very much on guard and she's very much feeling that someone may be attacking her. So she takes a lot of what Akar says as a personal assault when he doesn't mean it. And I think we've all been around those people who, because they're very dry and they're very unemotional and they're very direct, like you feel like they're coming after you and they don't mean that at all. It's just their personality, especially if they're in a position of authority above you. And that's what she's feeling here. And I also think she is... You know, throughout this book, she has to come to terms with whether or not she's okay with the idea of Bajor being part of the Federation or not. And she knows it's something now for a decade that they've been working towards. But like so many things that you work towards, it's one thing 
to think about it and have a position on it when it's still hypothetical. But when the time comes when it's going to become real, or it's not going to become real, but a decision is going to be made, then your feelings on it really change. And I think she projects a lot of that onto Admiral Akar here as well. Well, and I think another thing that she does as well, I mean, she's she's had a lot of experience with, with Starfleet, you know, obviously with Cisco and then Admiral Ross and, and kind of working with these people. And I, I think what I, I got from Akar is he really comes in and she has no idea what to expect. Is he going to be a bad moral? Or is he going to be more like an Admiral Ross? And he's really a blank slate when he first comes on, you know, and he's asking her all these questions. And Kira, just in general, always is somebody who's on the defensive. And, you know, uh, she was less so, I think, when she had Odo around and that she had the security of that yeah. relationship. But now that he's gone yeah. and Cisco is gone as well, I think that um, there's she's lost a little bit of that that she had gained in the series and she's had to become a little bit more guarded i think and i i felt like it made so much sense for her to be on guard with akaar and and not really know where he's coming from um and then i loved that of course that by the end they have created this really kind of beautiful friendship honestly and and I you know you were looking forward to seeing this grow yeah the ending was was good it yeah. was amazing um you know uh and again it creating that relationship you know starting off on that what she thinks is kind of a bad foot you know she thinks is kind of something that's um aggressive towards her like that he's judging her the whole time and all of that and really what he's trying to do is he's trying to ask questions just to get to know her. Um, and, of course, she's always being so defensive that she's taking it, I think, to heart more. And, 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 and yeah. because of that, kind of twisting it and tra- taking it the wrong way when he doesn't mean it like well, that you at do all. That. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like with email, right? When you read email, you read a lot into it because you can't hear the tone. And since right. he apparently speaks with no tone or yes. no emotion, you read what you want into what he's saying to you. I was kind of thinking of uh, some of the uh, discussions on the Trek BBS, for example, where right, somebody right. makes some innocuous comment and somebody thinks it's a personal attack and they fly off the handle. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What I also found interesting near the end was that when he finally tells her, she asks, were you trying to judge Bajor by what you're asking me? And he says, no, I was trying to judge you. And she says she, to herself, she f- actually feels better that way. It's like, I think she really wants to protect her people. You know, she she really wants what's best for Bajor. And she took offense to a lot of what he asked her and to his approach to her throughout the book, because I think she was just very, very worried about whether something she said could have an adverse effect on all the people on Bajor. And so when she found out that it was just about her personally, it was almost like a relief for her. Well, and and it was so interesting too, because I, I, I think her being attained has had a huge impact on her psyche and she's lost a little bit of her mojo. And so this is maybe how Kira got her mojo back. Um, in, in that, um, one, she saw that her, her value is still there for Shakar, 
like that he still appreciates and values very much her opinion. Mm-hmm. And and the same thing with, with this relationship with Akaar is that there's somebody who really does value her. Like with the, all the compliments that he gives her at the end are, are you know, you, you can tell that he has been judging her and he has not found her wanting like like cisco he has found Mm -hmm. her to be an impressive amazing woman who is uh so good at at what she does and as we saw in the series kira learned how to put aside her more aggressive tendencies and and put them to better use and I, i think it really shines through in the book here so well, the next thing, Chris and, and, and Dan, I really wanted to get into because it's a big part of the book is is the relationship between Prin and Vaughn. We finally figure out um, here that we're told what happened with them. Um, and really, it's about them working towards a resolution that David R. George really does not make it easy for them. Um, and so what did you guys think about that and how that kind of resolved itself by the end? Well, I was glad to finally find out what was going on, I have to say, uh, there. I I know very well what it feels like from Prin's side to be estranged from a parent, although not for the same reason that she is. Uh, but, you know, not knowing how to bridge that gap, uh, not knowing, you know, like neither side can actually approach each other or address the problem. So this part of the book, it's, um, you know, it strikes close to home uh, for me in that sense. And, you know, I guess I would say I think it's portrayed quite realistically. I think David did a good job in in setting this up and writing it that, uh, on the one hand, you could feel like it goes on for too long, but then again, I mean, these kinds of things go on for for years or decades, and so um, I, I think that what causes them to finally come together, and of course, nothing gets fixed in this book, right? But they they finally sort of mutually agree to stop the standoff and to try to move forward, and I think that the the events that lead to that were were quite effective as well. Yeah, I felt very much the same way um, in my notes for this book. I said that their relationship felt very real, um, much like you just said. And in that, it kind of, it was a little hard to read sometimes because uh, mm-hmm. it, it was just so painful. Yeah, And I think as a reader, you kind of, or at least I did anyway, I kind of put myself in both of their places and how hard it must be for both of them when you feel like a parent has let you down or not been there for you. And at the same time, being a father and and looking at your child who, when they look at you, you don't see respect in their eyes, you don't see love, you see your own shortcomings. And it was pretty heart-wrenching in some areas, for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, and I I love that the way that, uh, especially the conversation that um, Prin has with Shar, and Shar confronts her and is like, "But did he make the right choice?" And it just blows her mind the thought that her dad may have made the right choice. That uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the idea that he. But may don't have... you think that maybe? Don't you think that maybe she? has kind of always known that what he did was 
the right choice in the situation, but she will never let herself admit that. And I think that's what it comes to in the book. She realizes she's angry at him for making the right choice, not the wrong one. Yeah. And, and probably yeah. a little angry at herself that she recognizes that it is the right choice too. And that, that she can't forgive him. Yeah. And that she's let it go on this long right, as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's and, kind of one yeah. of those things that takes on a life of its own. Right. You reach a point in a situation like this where like even if you want to to put a stop to it, you can't. Like it picks up so much momentum. Right. And that's what I feel here between yeah. Vaughn and Prynne that it's been going on so long and the momentum has built up to the point to where neither one of, they, they both want to stop it, but they just can't. They just don't even know how. Well, and I, I you know, what I love about the, the, the storyline is that, like you said, Chris, these things can go on for years, decades, your entire life. And it usually takes some big event to wake you out, you know, to shake you out of that, to wake you up. Yeah. And what I appreciate is that David crafts a huge life-changing event that they go through. You know, uh, Vaughn coming close to death, being to kind of uh, be able to see and face all of these different things, such as, you know, this idea of loneliness and, 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 um, um, being withdrawn um, and uh, and all of that, um, being disconnected um, and and fearful and afraid, and seeing that from mm-hmm. from the thought space and 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 all that we'll get into in just a little while with that. But uh, experiencing all of that, having Prin experience of that as well in some ways, so that it can kind of bring them together to realize, you know, life is short, and you either um, make up and get over stuff or you spend the rest of your life completely and utterly miserable. And and I think you have to kind of have something just jar you. And, and I love that David gave us something big enough. So I don't feel like it doesn't make sense. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like it is pretty uh, valid in the book. And I'm, I'm so glad like you, Chris, that one, we finally find out what happened at least <laughs> if if he yeah. hadn't fixed it it would have been okay i would i'm just glad i got an answer finally what's going on with his family um but i do love that there really is a sense of partial resolution so that they can kind of move forward and i, I like that a lot well and plus he adds a good star trek twist science fiction twist to it at the end a helping hand Right to bring them together, not only in what Vine experienced in have this natural force helping him, or not really helping him, forcing him to relive painful moments throughout his life, and and fortunately it didn't involve Cybox sticking his hand or talking to you on this, this time, but you know reliving painful events in your life, but but also this sort of shared dream between Vaughn and Prynne where they kind of experience each other's dreams, but they don't exactly know what's going on, but there's like this connection created between them because it was important that it's a point where, especially for Vaughn, I mean, he really thinks that he's dying. He's going to die. And if you let this stuff go on and on and on, you also reach the end of your life and realize that you didn't fix it. And now you never can. And so then you end with that sense of loss and failure as well. And and big events 
you know, world-shattering events are generally needed to put a stop to a situation like that between a parent and a child or a brother and a sister or whatever it is. Uh, but the ultimate one is if you think you're going to die and then you didn't fix it. And of course, that's the, the the breaking point here. Absolutely, yeah. When you get to the point too, you just really realize that you were never really living. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 this this anger and this bitterness and this hatred and all of that, it, it destroys everything. It, it destroys even the joy that you have in your life because you can't be joyful. You can't really be happy because there's always something nagging and gnawing at you, uh, slowly eating away at you. And uh, I think that um, that's what they also realize is that this is taking away from living life. Um, and if, you know, you can't let things go. Yeah, you will get to the end of life and just realize I I didn't really live. I was just going to say, and like you said, like even the good moments, uh, you can't share them with this person who should be a huge part of your life. So it taints those as well. Do you think that Armus was some guy who, who never patched things up with his son or daughter? And then he just lived as an oil slick on that planet until Yara came by. He took it all out on her. <laughs> wow, I think that's a question for the uh, Earl Grey guys. Um, okay. <laughs> and so, but yeah, that could be it. Um, everything's mommy yeah. and daddy issues, man. Yeah, it always is. Doesn't even matter. I mean, you can be an oil slick or an amoeba in space or just a gigantic hand. It's probably mommy and daddy issues. <laughs> I mean, look at Terlane, yeah. mommy and daddy issues. Uh, well definitely well yeah so um (laughs) well moving on we go into another big relationship then it's it's really um been something that's been a whole part of the the deep space nine relaunch which is kind of navigating the the rough seas of love for uh dax and bashir and them kind of getting used to especially her being in command and him being under her command and and the struggle between wanting to take care of somebody and, and wanting to shield them from stuff. Um, and, and also, uh, letting somebody have that experience and, and move forward and all that. What did you guys think of, of the way that was handled? Because this is really has been a big part of the whole deep space nine relaunch. Um, well, I think, uh, I think Esri kind of flexing her command muscles for the first time is, is really interesting. Um, there are a couple times, like I understand you know, the strain being put on the relationship and that sort of thing. But there were a couple times I kind of wanted to smack Julian and just like, you know, lighten up a little bit. The last thing we really want is like another squabbling O'Briens on Deep Space Nine. And just sometimes it seemed to be a little bit veering that way just slightly. And it was a little unnerving. Yeah. I think, as you know... Matthew and and Dan, you know from listening to the show that I have not been the biggest fan of the Esri-Julian relationship, especially in the novels, but it has improved with each novel. And I think here, the things that bother me about it have improved to the fact to where I don't feel like they're acting like squabbling teenagers in quasi-love anymore, uh, as they were at at one point. But but I don't know, you know, in this story, what interests me about the two of them in the story really has nothing to do with their relationship. It's almost, for me, 
just the Esri part of the storyline and how this is moving her closer to the command track and she's finding her own identity. And I think that's where maybe some of the pressure point is here, where I think that 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 Bashir still sees her more as we were familiar with her as being right. on the show where she's she's young and she's very unsure of herself. And Matthew, when we talked about her on The Orb, we called it the Confused Counselor, right? That was the name of the episode. I think he still sees her more that way, but she's gaining so much confidence. And of course, Vaughn is really nurturing her confidence on the command track as well. And she's really becoming her own person as Esri Dax now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that Bashir really quite knows how to handle that. And and he's overly protective of her, which may be partially just him being the chief medical officer because they, you know, the CMOs typically tend to be overly uh, protective of anyone on the crew. But he wants to bring in what's happening in their personal life when she's off duty. And Vaughn is saying, I don't want to hear about it. All I care about is what she's doing when she's on duty because she's a Starfleet officer. And I think that's how she feels as well. So as far as Esri's concerned in here, I actually kind of just not passed over, but, you know, I followed what was going on with their relationship and just put my focus on her as an individual mm-hmm. and her own development. You know, uh, there were a couple of points where, um, I, like you, Dan, Julian kind of got on my nerves. And then he had a, a great conversation there with with Elias and, and, and um, Elias understood where he was coming from. Um, and that really helped, uh, I think to, to make it more normal that this would happen. I, and just the struggle of, of being on a, on a starship, um, and having people either under your command or under your care and, and, and wanting what's best for them and wanting to protect them, whether you're the captain or you're the chief medical officer, you know, um, it, it's really the same. And as the chief medical officer, I think in a lot of ways you, you care uh, as much about their mental health as you do about their, physical health and and um and of course the more you know the people the the worse it gets and i I, you know it really i think helps shed light on the relationship we saw with bones kirk and spock you know that bones is so overprotective of those guys because they're his family you know um and uh it just really happens this is what happens when you have people together for long periods of time, even if they're not in a romantic relationship, you, you be, do become attached to them. Yeah. And, and so... Well, um, a big difference there, Matthew, is that Kirk, Spock, and Bones weren't sleeping together well, that, in the same bed when they were off-duty, except I, I, in yeah. fanfic. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I don't mean to, to get into that uh, realm. We'll let Charlene do that for us. Um, but... What what I what I just yeah. mean is that you know obviously it is something that is very um, important in taking care of those around you and obviously Julian and Esri have a different relationship because they're actually you know lovers as well and that does complicate things um, and I thought it was just nice to kind of see them have to work that out I mean whether it's kind of annoying sometimes to read you you're you're going to need to see that because we haven't seen a lot of it in yeah. Star Trek anyway. So they're just helping us work out what it would really be like to be in some kind of relationship with somebody that you're on a starship with. Um, yeah. Because we didn't get a lot of I, that. I think another pressure point here, though, is that I don't think that Bashir 
knows how to be in a mature relationship. I think that for him, when Esri starts exerting her own identity more and she keeps becoming stronger and stronger as a person, he doesn't know how to deal with that. I think he, he, it's a very, it's like when you're young and you're in first relationships and it's more like you're, what do I want to say here? It's a, it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily see it as equal footing. It's more like you're taking care of this person. Mm -hmm. And I think especially that men have that view of women very often, especially when they're younger. And as you mature as well, you have to learn how to balance that and, and be in a mature relationship where two people are equals. And I don't think Bashir has the experience in relationships to deal with that. And so when we see what's happening with Esri here, it's all falling apart for him. Yeah, if you look at kind of Bashir's relationship history, I mean, like in the second season, he had Melora, who is somebody he was kind mm-hmm. of looking after as she tried to cope with her environment. And then the other kind of major one that you get is uh, Serena in season seven, very much someone Bashir was looking yeah. after and nurturing, experiencing the world for the first time. So it's kind of been a running theme with his character that uh, he's kind of a very... Uh, I don't want to say patriarchal, but like uh, kind of guiding uh, influence on the lives of the people he's with. I think then another thing that is, as I was thinking about this as you guys were talking, I honestly think that his genetic engineering plays into this too, because he does always kind of feel superior to others and and feel like he knows what's best. And uh, you see that actually, and the reason I bring that up is you see that play this out in the book when he kind of is saying, look, Esri, you were in a coma. You can't really trust what you were thinking or feeling there. You know, he's he's using his rationality and his, you know, his thought process to say, you know, that that's not what happened. You know, and I think that he just kind of does that with everybody. Honestly, it's not just in relationships, but he just does it with everybody because He's so used to being the smartest person in the room. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it'd be like it's like Spock or Data. They they're they're right ninety nine point nine percent of the time. You know, but when it comes to relationships, nine three seven four percent exactly. When <laughs> when it comes to relationships, um, it's different, and I think that's where Bashir has trouble just kind of letting go of that control of of being the smartest person in the room. Um, that it's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about listening and understanding. And that's where he should probably just take some counseling classes so so you can learn to hear well, instead of speak. He needs Miles back around. I yes, think he does. That's where Miles was the great counterbalance for him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yep. yeah. 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 Um, and I think that's one of the things that we actually see in the, the Deep Space Nine relaunch that we miss is having that interaction between them in that relationship because yeah. um, that was really a core of the show in a lot of ways and it was sad when they had them move off to Cardassian honestly you know at this point we still haven't heard from the O'Briens in the uh, relaunch so um, it, yeah it, it, we'll, we get to it later on but we'll, we'll move on from the lovebirds um, to a different set of well, a flock of lovebirds, really, we'll call it, uh, and the Andorian <laughs> crisis that comes up with Char and his mother coming on, on the station, um, or Zavri, as as I think we would say, that that's how you say it, um, 
his bondmates come onto the station begging him not to go to the Gamma Quadrant, but to come back to Andor with them and reproduce. Um, and it creates this whole identity struggle of the individual responsibility versus the responsibility towards the collective uh, and what is too much. And I thought this was a huge and very interesting conversation because it's it's very intimate between the bondmates, but it also has a much larger issue about a person's responsibility to their society. Yeah, I I agree on that. I the the one thing I felt though with the Andorian bits in this book that there was so much other stuff going on that every time we came around to this particular storyline, it almost felt like it was it was rammed into the book like wherever you could find some empty space to put the storyline this particular storyline um although it's important for char's character sort of uh failed to engage me very much in this book dan what about you um well i uh i find it really interesting what you were saying about like the kind of uh responsibility you have towards your society versus uh yourself as an individual um, kind of living in I, I lived in Korea and taught English there for a couple of years and like that's something that that society is really struggling with right now um, the kind of older generation you know all the generations living in one house and you know kids having well, that's to, how Japan is as well yeah, yeah. exactly um, you know and the kids having to as as you would know having to go get married and and have their own kids, whereas, you know, there's a lot of influences pushing them in other directions, you know, maybe uh, trying to follow their own passions as opposed to doing what is expected of them. And I think that was illustrated quite well in this novel through Char. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to to mention just how long this storyline goes on for after this novel like it's it's really fascinating to see the inception of this storyline which um i hope i'm not spoiling anything for anybody but uh is a part of the novel verse for um over 10 years of real time like novel publishing time and uh, it's really fascinating that a storyline could last quite that long you know it's interesting what you say there about a Korea, Dan, because now when I think about Japan, and there are some similarities in the cultures, uh, one problem we have in Japan, which actually mirrors what's going on with the Andorians, is that we have a negative population growth. And it's actually a big problem for us because yeah, our population is too. decreasing rapidly. Our population right now is uh, about 120 million. And I think they're projecting by 2050 our population will be about 70 million. And part of that has become that uh, people get married much, much later. Uh, Women don't want to get married anymore uh, in many cases. Uh, Women's careers, they've decided uh, not to have children. I think part of the problem is it's not so much that people don't want to have children, but they put focus into their careers. The next thing you know you're in your early 30s or your mid 30s. And uh, another problem we have here is, you know, once you hit 40, 
in terms of career, you're kind of unhirable. You've you've passed the age of being useful, even though there is a great respect for older people in Japanese culture, and I, I think in Korean culture as well, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are certain levels to it. And anyway, what happens here is that um, our population growth is negative, and it's becoming a huge strain because our workforce is shrinking every single year while our elderly population grows. And I think that's sort of the mirrors what we do see with the Andorians here in this crisis that they're facing. And so it does... Uh, it does connect with me on that level. Uh, there was just so much going on in this book beside that that I wanted to keep following those other storylines that um, the inception of this here uh, felt like a, an extra layer of icing on the cake, I guess you would say, to, to yeah. every, all the other great writing in here. And there is an awful lot in this book already. So mm-hmm. I can totally understand exactly. how yeah. it would feel like piling on at some point. <laughs> well, and I, I like... And, and this is where I really like, um, you know, they're having this argument and, and uh, she says, love comes with certain obligations. And uh, one of the bondmates says back, obligations, yes, but I'm not sure that love, real love, makes demands. An obligation right. is something that Shar would want to fulfill. But our demands, the demands of society, I think maybe we're asking too much of Shar. And, and, and before that, he had made the comment about... I don't know, maybe some of us are dying a lot faster as individuals. And that there is this whole responsibility thing between an individual and its collective society. And that those two um, have to be in sync with each other. You, you, You can't be pulling too much out. I mean... You need enough individuality to create creativity and, and and invention and all of those kind of things. But at the same time, you need enough collectivity um, to be able to create security, safety, family, all of those kind of things as well. So all of that together, and, and this is where I thought, yeah, there's a lot in this book. Who cares? Like, give mm-hmm. me more. Like, I want my Star Trek books to have a thousand different issues that make me think, you know? So mm-hmm. I really appreciated that david was okay with throwing this much at me because you know what deep space nine threw this much at me all the time well exactly yeah and that and i agree with you on that and that's what i said when you when you think about the series you would expect to get 500 something page books yeah to cover it and 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 i don't have any problem with what david did i think he was right to put yet this yet another thread like this in here because it's exactly what we would have gotten on the show. There's always so much going on and sometimes we just touch on it for just a little bit. There might be only one scene or one exchange of dialogue in an episode about something that they will come back to over and over and over and then later on it will become a bigger a bigger thing. So so definitely I think David did the right thing here with this. Well, uh, the last issue that I just really wanted to hit uh, before we we end, because uh, we have been talking for quite a while, um, but I think that this book deserves it, as we've talked about how long it is and how dense it is. And and honestly, we haven't touched on half of the story is I really felt like and we talked about the beginning that this book is about relationships, but it's also about connection and it's all about connection from the thought space that they run into then the gamma quadrant to row and quark which i kind of want to talk about a little bit because eh. um <laughs> because i lost all respect for row when she started having i mean we have this thing on track fm where the guys think row lauren uh, low ren is is better than than kira 
When you say the guys, you're talking about Darren, Daniel, and Philip from Earl Grey. Exactly. Um, not, not, but, not all the guys on the note. Right. So <laughs> it's basically just the Earl Grey guys. But I'm like, come on, guys. Uh, she dates Quark in the books. Give me a break. Uh, Kira would be caught dead <laughs> with Quark. So I'm sorry. Just anyway. Um, and, and But really it, what it comes down to is this book was about this idea about how no matter what you are in the universe whether you're some sort of virtual reality uh being from another universe thought space that's all we can think of to call you because we're not really sure really what you are um to being a ferengi and a uh, and a bajoran you want to be known and you want to be loved uh, and you want to know you matter to somebody. Uh, and, and, and in the end, that means it's about being connected. And I just thought it was so interesting that this book just drives that point home over and over and over again with every single relationship that it talks about. Um, and man, did it make me feel good after reading this book to be like, yeah, that's really what life is all about. Life is about love relationships and connection. Because that's what it makes all of this really worth living. Uh, whether we're connected mm-hmm. in fandom, uh, and I get tired of fans complaining about everything all the time. It's like, just enjoy. It's entertainment, guys. You know, like, if you're so disappointed with your entertainment, stop watching it. Um, you know, go find something that really makes you happy. You know, go find somebody else that you'd be connected to. So I just love that. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think about that? Did you all see that at all? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's borne out in so many different ways in this book. Uh, and um, like Quark and, and Roe, for example, are such an unorthodox couple. And it it seems kind of out of left field. But uh, the more I read about the relationship and the more it evolves, um, the more I kind of think, oh, yeah, okay, I can kind of get behind it. And I can kind of see what these two people see in each other and it just goes to show like especially a character like Ro who's had so much difficulty being connected to the people around her uh, through various um events in her life you know it's kind of nice to see maybe maybe not the connection that we might think makes immediate logical sense but it's very clearly meaningful to her and uh fills something in her that was missing i find the whole relationship bizarre (laughs) but um but i can also see why they the two of them are being brought together uh you know for the reasons that you guys say and we talk about well i mentioned earlier on in the discussion about the two of them being um having a similarity, sort of a bond between the two of them, because they're both with Bajor as part of the Federation, they both sort of become outsiders because for Ro, her entire standing, uh, her job, her career and everything come into question because of her previous record with Starfleet. And, you know, who knows what the Admiralty will decide to do with her uh, if there's no Bajoran militia anymore. And then for Cork, we already talked about the whole thing with the the no money economy and what he would do with his bar and everything. 
so they are both they are the two people on the station whose lives will be thrown most into question uh, with Bajor becoming part of the Federation. So I see them coming together. And I also think that they both have a similar attitude towards people. Like they're both, they can both kind of be defensive, maybe look for what, what can I get out of this? And so having them find each other attractive and, and coming together works for me. I still think it's a really weird relationship. And Roe has never been one of my favorite characters on Star Trek. I really, I didn't care much for this character on The Next Generation. She's okay. Like, I don't hate the character, but not one of my favorites. And the way that she's being written so far in the relaunch also has, um, it's a little bit hard for me to wrap my mind around at times. Yeah, I think um, for me, you know, she's okay. I I like her much better in the novels, and then as we go on, she definitely gets better, uh, for sure. I find her much more interesting character then. Um, but in a lot of ways, I think she's a little bit too much of a copy of Kira, and to me, she's just yeah. kind of a a uh, a poor man's Kira in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I appreciate that as the novels do go on, they start to try and make her a little bit more of her own character. Um, but yeah, she always just feels a little bit too much like Kira. And mainly that's because Kira was supposed to be Roe on the show and Michelle Forbes said no. Yeah. And they created Kira instead. But then Kira to me just became a better character. And a Nav Visitor, I, I think to me just embodied what it meant to be a strong uh Bajoran yeah. woman and uh, you know Roe then of course became somebody we saw in the novel verse instead and and then she was the one who felt more like Kira because we'd spent seven years with her and you know Roe we'd had a few episodes with so I think uh a, a bit like Kira but without the personality is sort of how I feel. Like, like I think maybe what maybe you're right. It's it's what you said. Maybe embodies what I feel. That when I read Roe and the way the character's written, it's almost like at times I feel like she's written off of the description that would have been for Kira in the series Bible, if the character were going to be Roe in the first place. Maybe and Nana Visitor has such a personality to her that that she brought so much more out of that character. And maybe if, if if we still had Kira, if everything about Kira was the same on paper, but it wasn't Nana Visitor playing the character, maybe Kira would have been stiffer the way I feel that Roe is written right now. Well, on that, I think maybe we should kind of uh, wrap up and get into some final thoughts for the book. So Dan, uh, final thoughts and, and rating for... Uh, Twilight, Mission Gamma Twilight. Well, uh, as I've said, my biggest uh, thing when I look to Star Trek is character. And I think this book just showed that immensely through um, Vaughn and Prin's relationship, through the internal thoughts and struggles of, Kier- of, of Roe and Quark and the experiences of the crew with the thoughtscape just this book is overflowing with character moments that are just really memorable and really stuck with me and 
at various points struck various uh, chords with my own experiences. So I have to give this one um, a very high rating because I just, when I read it, as long as it is and as dense it is, as it is, I just got lost in the pages and sucked right back into that world of Deep Space Nine that I love so much. So I think I'm going to have to give this novel 9 out of 10 bars of gold-pressed latinum that Quark will not be earning when the Federation takes over. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Well, you know, we didn't even talk about the whole twist with the planet that they visited in the Gamma Quadrant and what was threatening that planet and what led them to another world and how Prin almost died and how Vaughn thought he had died and everything else that was going on there, which was extremely important and of course important for moving things forward and I guess we'll talk about this more down the road and I loved as much as all the character elements that we talked about today I also loved that part of the story as well because I think that David did a really great job of writing it in a way where it's a very interesting mystery and then you think you've got it all figured out and then you find out that no it's not quite as simple as it seems and I felt that this also, like I said at the beginning, this part of the story, everything that we've talked about so far with all the characters, this is the core Deep Space Nine part of the story, right? But what happens in the Gamma Quadrant also brings the other parts of Star Trek, the space exploration, the Strange New Worlds part back in again. I mean, we meet a fascinating new race. I thought David did a really good job of creating... Uh, something new and the way they communicate through color. I mean, like there's no vocal part to it, which was quite interesting. And what was threatening them felt inspired by certain things that we've seen before in Star Trek, like the sphere builders or species 8472 as well, a little bit like that, but yet it's not. It also has another very fascinating uh, element to it that reminds me a little bit of some stuff, you know, beyond Star Trek, you know, like some Stephen Baxter stuff. And that part was really, really fascinating. And I guess it's good that we didn't talk about it too much because that way the this book is still, if you haven't read this book yet and you've listened to the show, despite we've talked about this for over an hour, you still pretty much have no idea what's going to happen in this book when you go read it. So that's great. Um, I think David did a fantastic job with this book, and uh, it's a great start to the Mission Gamma series, a great continuation to the DS9 relaunch, and I'm going to give it 10 puddles of gray ooze, and you'll wow. find out what that means that's... when you read the book. <laughs> that is a Wow, that's a huge rating right there. Um, <laughs> I... Uh... I like both of you. I, I felt like this is a fantastic book. Um, you know, we we all talked about uh, Tower of Babel uh, not too long ago, and I feel like this was the way to create a really complex story without overloading people with too much detail. Um, uh, I think this was the way to create a massive Star Trek story and, and still make me feel like I got the whole thing. And so I really want to praise David R. George for creating 
uh, one of the best Star Trek stories and one of the best character driven Star Trek stories we've ever seen. Um, really well done. Uh, I think, you know, his goal had to have been to, to set up what's going to come next in Deep Space Nine. And he does a fantastic job of, of really doing that. Uh, I'm very interested now to see what else happens in the Gamma Quadrant, obviously, even though I know because I've read them all before, but it's been a really long time. I'm still very interested now to see what's going to happen in the Alpha Quadrant with all that's going on with Bajor. Um, and I know what's coming there too. So, and that is huge. So it just, it really sets up everything so well. Um, and so I'm going to give this 10 Orion Dabo girls. Wow. wow. Oh, That's wait, right. Dabo girls, not nine Dabo girls and one Dabo boy, which is another thing we didn't talk about. <laughs> I don't want to talk about the Dabo boy, Chris. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Dan, I really want to thank you for, for coming on again. It's always great to have you here. So, uh, before we let you go, of course, please tell everyone where they can find you online, uh, and, uh, where they can check you out. Okay. Well, uh, my, my personal website where I review Star Trek novels and, uh, post new Star Trek book news, uh, you can just find that at treklit.com. Uh, really easy to find. Um, Twitter at Treklit Reviews, uh, Facebook.com slash Treklit Reviews. Pretty consistent across the board on uh, how you can find me there. Excellent. Awesome, Dan. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so yeah, much. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Oh, and right. I, I, I just got to say, uh, when I told my friends that I'd be on the show again, uh, they asked me what book I'd be talking about. And I said, oh, Twilight. And uh, that got some confused looks. So, <laughs> they thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully this That's is funny. a bit uh, They ran a into surprise. sparkly vampires. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was weird. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, Matthew, I'm so glad Dan could join us again for this show. I, I really like having that third voice, and especially in this book today. Boy, I don't know if I could have pulled my own weight without Dan and his knowledge bombs coming out today. Chris, I, I'm with you. Um, I do think that uh, having Dan on has been great. Uh, and also, it, it's so much to talk about. And, and as we mentioned before, we didn't cover half of this book. I mean... And oh, so goodness. we didn't cover 10% of this book. We barely scratched the surface of what's in Which this book. Which is so great because it, it really does mean that fans can go and, and, and really read the book and enjoy it without, you know, uh, yeah. us having ruined everything. So really go get this book, enjoy it. It's fantastic. Yeah. No, I don't think we ruined anything in this one. There's so much there. We didn't even talk about the ending. So, yeah, so it was great. But this isn't the only thing that we've been talking about this week on the network, Matthew. So, everyone, here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Dr. McCoy with Larry Nemechek. But, you know, when everybody else had their Kirk shirt or their Spock shirt, like the first uniform I had my mom make me was a McCoy uniform, of course. Earl Grey. The 7-7 Challenge. Did you know that Tim Russ was one of the possible choices for Commander Jordan But did you know he was also in Star Trek Generations? But did you know he was also served with Captain Sulu on board the Excelsior? I did know that, in fact. The Orb. Our Man Bashir Commentary. <laughs> I love Avery. <laughs> Tell me what happens next. 
<laughs> and the look, the look up at an angle. He's yes. not even looking at Bashir. He's no. looking up at the angle. Tell me it's... what happens next. The ready room. Spectre of the gun. They just, they're so quick to jump to conclusions. Like the guy gets shot in front of them and they're like, death is the only thing that's real on this planet. And like, wait a minute, how do you know that? That could just be a total figment of your imagination as well. To the journey! Favorite slime commentary. Yeah, Janeway is, uh, you better get more coffee, sweetie. It's going to be a long day. Ensign Kim is going to put you through some hell. Warp 5. Alternate outcomes of the Zindi crisis. But inter- the Enterprise is heavily damaged. We're talking practically destroyed everything but a shell maybe the saucer section is the only thing that's still around and 80 percent of the crew dies commentary trek stars rick bourbon and star trek it's kind of a moving target so he found some dimensionality he made it into a cube yeah and so he was able to move things around in there a board cube mm. <laughs> continuing mission Star Trek Equinox. John Savage actually came up with the premise for the story, but they needed somebody to flesh it out, to develop it. And so they sent me John's premise, and I just, well, it expanded into the script for the project that we're doing. Melodic Treks. The Borg in Music. In when when they released it as a Blu-ray, and they combined. Them, they connected yeah. them, and there's the no feature. delay. There's they, they cut off that music, and then it's just like, oh, that didn't work. Literary treks. Rise of the Federation, Tower of Babel. Saval talks about this idea that you know people mutually consent to abide by these rules for their collective benefit. The idea that you know a- absolute unfettered freedom is just a ridiculous idea. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. We have new shows for you every day of the week, and some days we even have two shows for you, and you'll find them in a wide variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom. You can also find us now on Spreaker, and you can download or stream from the website. So lots of ways for you to get our shows. So go check them out and find out what's going on here on the network. If you'd like to send us feedback on today's show, let us know what you think about Mission Gamma Twilight, iEnterprise Part 2, or anything you want to talk to us about with Star Trek books and comics. You can do that in a number of ways as well. You can go to our website at trek.film slash contact to send us a message. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that'll come to both Matthew and me by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.film slash forums to talk to us about the show books, comics, your favorite Star Trek series, whatever it is, there's a lot of stuff waiting for you there as well. And then if social media is your thing, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And you'll find us on Twitter where we're always tweeting away about Star Trek under username trekfm. Now, Matthew, when you're not, uh, you know, talking to Admiral Akaar and trying to figure out if he's sizing you up or if maybe he's just hard to read, where can people find you? Well, Chris, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Um, you can also find me doing The Orb with you, where we talk Deep Space Nine all the time. And so if you've been enjoying our Deep Space Nine relaunch, we would love to have you check out The Orb. 
You can also find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Do lots of different types of things there. Um, now, Chris, when you're not hanging out at Quarks, just oogling that new Dabo boy, trying to get as close as possible to those <laughs> rippling pectorals, where can we find you? <laughs> I knew you were going to go with that. And actually, after I did the Admiral Akar, I thought, Man, I should have. I should have used the Dabo boy. Uh, Sucker! (laughs) Guess I'm glad that you chose it here anyway. (laughs) All right. Now you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, you can find me on a lot of different shows. Besides doing the orb with you, Matthew, you can find me on Warp 5, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. You can also find me on Continuing Mission, which is about Star Trek fan films, and that's mostly interviews with people who are involved in producing those films. There's also Matterstream, where I interview scientists and writers and actors and other creatives about things inspired by Star Trek. And you'll also find me on The Ready Room with hosts from all around the network each week as we talk about Star Trek news and all five live-action Star Trek series. And Matthew, the ready room that is dropping... Well, by the time this Literary Treks comes out, it will already have dropped. Is our DS9 week on the ready room? You're co-hosting with me for news. And we talked about the sound of her voice. So again, if you love DS9, go check that out as well. Before we let you go, we'd also like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. So go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up today. Pick up Mikio Kaku's book that we talked about or any other book you want. If you decide not to stick with Audible at the end, there's nothing to lose. You get to keep that book. That's yours. But I know you're going to love Audible. And by supporting them, you're helping us keep literary treks coming to you each week as well. Again, that's at audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. Welcome tonight. Uh, we're really glad you're here. Uh, this is part two, and and Dan is Dan. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hot mic. Yeah, Dan is going to begin.